Let me pray for us as we get started. Lord, we acknowledge that uh, you shelter us now and you care for us. You provide for us and you protect us. And so um, speak your word so that we could hear, um, move us so that we would obey, and then cause us to be the kind of people who delight you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was kind to say that I've been here a lot. Um, It's true. I I haven't actually been here since our second daughter was born in late August, I believe, except by attempting to Skype you during your 40th anniversary celebration. And people have asked, so how has it been? Uh, The best way to describe how it's been is last week I came to Community Bible Church thinking I was supposed to preach, but I came a week early. I'd like to think that was an aberration, but I thought on Tuesday I was supposed to go up to speak at Vassar, and I wasn't. So that's a quick description of how it's been with two children at home. Life has been out of control, um, and I realized all of my scheduling in November probably occurred at the end of August, right after the baby was born. So there was a lot of, oh, sure, I can go do that. I'll put that in my calendar right now. Oh, no, somebody is screaming. So it's been a little crazy. But when you have children, life is a little crazy, and you often end up asking these kind of crazy questions of one another as parents. Uh, And if they're honest parents in the room, I trust you've asked these questions too. Things like, what were we thinking? (laughs) How did this happen to us? How long will this go on in colleges when? One of the weirder questions my wife and I have asked each other has been, so would you rather our children be scarred or scared? in part because we've been reflecting on our own childhoods and trying to assess what kind of parents we wanted to be and what our posture wanted to be, we wanted our posture to be. Um, because in some ways, as I think about parenting, and my oldest is just a little over two, so we're entering this stage where scarring is a very high possibility. But we realized that there were two postures we could take toward our children, one of which was the kind of protection that would... Um, so enwrap them in both emotional and physical bubble wrap that they would never get scarred. They'd never get hurt. They would never be in a place where they could possibly be injured because we could so carefully guide and plan and do our best to protect that we would minimize the scarring. We also realized, though, that um, a choice to do that uh, would be to protect them in some ways that maybe weren't beneficial to our children maybe it would be better for them to be scarred than to live life afraid, scared of both the opportunities as well as the risks in front of them, right? And I realize, because I posed this question to my mom, the grandmother, who looked at me with that look that says, have you taken leave of your senses? What kind of question is that? Don't make me try to take the children away from you, because this is my granddaughter. I love her, and I'm not going to let you play games with her. But um, my parents raised me, I think, to be more scared than scarred. They were the kind of parents who so protected me, so cared for me, so watched out for me, and they saw the world as a world filled with risk. A risk of physical injury, of financial injury, of emotional injury, of uh, intellectual injury, that they wanted to be really protective. And I think as I've reflected over time, I've wondered whether that was the best posture for them, because it's left me a little less willing to take risks, to try new things, to be brave or courageous when I need to be. My wife, on the other hand, I think was just trained to not worry about scarring at all. She was, you know, 
she's the one who goes to Africa all the time by herself, and I just think, wow, I'm, I'm glad you're managing that. <laughs> My tendency, of course, to be um, scared was multiplied by choosing to go to law school. And the problem with law school is you're introduced to a world of risk. Particularly in your first year of law school, you take in your first semester a class called torts. And torts are all of those intentional and unintentional injuries that we do to one another. So product liability, slip and fall cases, um, all uh, accidents all occur in torts. And so as you begin to read those cases, you suddenly look at the world through new eyes. Right? It's a world filled with danger of people being injured all the time intentionally and un unintentionally. Random things happen and people are hurt. It's a little bit like doctors or who go to medical school as students and all of a sudden they decide they have every illness known to man. So the world is seen through this lens of possible injuries and threats. And really that level of fear is really powerful, isn't it? If you paid any attention at all to the last election cycle, which I found discouraging and disgusting in equal measure, it struck me how frequently people from both parties mongered fear, encouraged us to be afraid of external threats, of internal threats, of everything from we're going to institute death panels, all of you are going to be executed if we run out of money, to the fear of these really crazy uh, conservative people are going to take charge and all of a sudden all of your safety nets will be destroyed. Right? All of it appeared to fear. None of it appealed to the highest values, our aspirations about who we want to be as a country of where we wanted to go as a people, it appeared to our deepest sense of insecurity and fear. Because they know that in the end, vision will wither in the face of fear. And it's always easier to encourage us to be afraid. Think about the last couple commercials that you've watched on television or have heard on the radio. It appeals to our fears of financial insecurity, so invest more wisely. Our fear of smelling bad, so use this particular soap product or deodorant. Our fear of looking bad and being socially inadequate. So if you just chew this gum and have these clothes, you'll be a little bit more acceptable. You might actually go on a bad vacation. So get travel insurance and make sure you use our website to plan your trip appropriately, right? I mean, it's fear at every level from the most trivial to the most profound. The power, I think, as well as the problem of fear is that it's totally self-referential, right? It's a selfish emotion in the end. It's all about self-protection, about self-preservation, about ensuring that we ourselves are taken care of. And whether you want to fight or flight or freeze in the face of fear, it's all about ourselves. And actually what they found as, you're, um, as they've looked at biology and brain science is that there's a little bit of our brain. I'm glad my wife isn't here because I could get, be getting this wrong and she's a doctor and so she won't have to correct me publicly. Um, but there's a little part of our brain kind of at the bottom called the amygdala, and when we're frightened or when we're anxiety or fear, it kind of hijacks our entire um, brain and takes control. Um, Daniel Goleman, who wrote the book called Emotional uh, Intelligence, called it the amygdala hijack. Because it kind of consumes your brain. All of a sudden, all the um, better cognitive thinking, all of your critical thinking disappears, and it's all about survival. One of the things, though, that researchers have found, largely thinking about interpersonal relationships, is when you have an amygdala hijack, right? When you have a really aggressive person scream at you, when you're in the middle of an accident, the best thing to do is take a deep breath. Because there's something about taking a deep breath that actually helps reset the way your brain is thinking. It lowers your blood pressure, and as your blood pressure goes down, all of a sudden your brain goes, oh, this isn't a crisis, we can actually move on. I want to suggest to you that Psalm 91, 
the psalm that we read earlier and that we'll look at again together, um, is a little bit of a take a deep breath. When you're in crisis, when you're confronted with danger, take a deep breath. Right? It's what we tell people all the time. When you're, you face aggression or attack, before you respond, take a deep breath. When you're all wound up, when you're filled with anxiety, rather than just freeze or fight or fl- ex- uh, engage in flight, take a deep breath and breathe in cleaner, deeper air deep into your body to allow yourself to reset. Let's look again at Psalm 91 together. Psalm 91 begins this way. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. One of the ways that we take a deep breath is that I think Psalm 91 reorients us away from the obsession with self that we have when we're frightened and reorients us toward God. It reminds us of who God is. There are actually four names for God used in the first two verses. And if you dwell in, if you savor, if you um, rest in those four names, all of a sudden the fear begins to subside, doesn't it? He who dwells in the shadow of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my trust, and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Think about those four names or identifications of God and how they begin to shape us. The God that we worship, the God that we know, is the most high God. He's supreme above all other competitors. There are no foreign inclement forces which have more power, more authority, or are battling for control of the universe or your own life or your security. The Lord is supreme over all competitors, whether other gods, fate, chance, or just dumb luck. There's nothing to be afraid of. Not only is he the most high that he's supreme, but he could be supreme but terribly weak. This is the Lord God Almighty, the strongest and the sovereign one. He both reigns supremely and has the power to execute his will. Not only is he powerful and is he supreme, but he is the Lord. He's the covenant-making God. He's the one who revealed himself on Mount Sinai to be the I Am. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, the one who eternally existed. Nothing came before him, nothing will proceed after him. He is all in all self-existent. There is nothing greater than he. But he's not only great, he's the God who actually initiates a covenant with us. Right? He revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai to say, this is my name, I am Yahweh, the Lord, and I've chosen you. You're my people. I'm going to be your God. I've chosen you out of all of the nations of the earth to be blessed, and now I'm yours. If you follow me, I will preserve you and your people, and out of your people... He promised to their forefathers, Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all nations. And though you're a small nation now, your numbers will be greater than the sands on the shore or the stars in the sky. Not only is he supreme and powerful, but this is a God who knows us and is actually committed to us, who loves us and has chosen us. And that's why, after these great superlatives about him being the Most High and the Almighty, And the Lord, the one who is, Yahweh, I am, 
the beautiful phrase, I think, is the last one that's used at the end of verse 2. This is my God. God is personal and relational. He's known by the writer of the psalm, and the writer of the psalm knows him. He's not a God who stands far off and says, yeah, 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 I'll save you. Probably a lot like we feel about um, the U.S. federal government. Sure, it's protective. It's just very far off, at least until mid-April. But this is a God who knows us and so that we can say, I am his and he is mine. And then the psalmist, I think, dwelling in this reality of God, both powerful and intimate, transcendent, as well as eminent, says, this God is my shelter and my shadow, my refuge and my fortress. Now think about these two sets of metaphors. And the psalms um, use a lot of parallelism, so they aren't often saying new things, but they're adding image upon image to round out the idea. But in the Middle East, in a land where... Um, Unlike now where we value the sunshine, and when the sun is out, it's a good day. If you're in the Middle East, the sun is both the giver of life, but it's also quite deadly. And so to find a place where you can seek shelter and experience shadow um, gives you a sense of security and safety, particularly from natural environmental uh, troubles. And the idea of having a refuge and a fortress, I want to suggest, offers you some social protection from human enemies. And so the psalmist seems to say, whether it's the inclement environment that we live in, the hard world that we exist in, or the interpersonal conflict in which we dwell, the Lord is my protection. The Lord offers me safety, and the Lord offers me hope. See, the psalm acknowledges um, we live in a fallen world filled with real dangers and with real enemies. These aren't naive hymns which go, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's a lot to be afraid of. There's actual real danger out there. But the psalmist reminds us we're invited to dwell with the Lord, to find our security and safety in God who is the Most High, the Almighty, the covenant-making, eternally existing deity who we can identify as our deity and more importantly who will identify us as his people. Not only can he protect us, but he will. Many of you are, I think, familiar with the Ministry of uh, International Justice Mission. Um, it's a, a mission agency which has uh, mobilized hundreds of lawyers, both here in the United States, but as well as around the world, to engage in opposing the problems of evil in ways that only lawyers can do, which is a nice way to think about lawyering, since it's so free, infrequently the way we think about it. Um, Gary Haugen uh, was an university student, graduated from the University or Harvard Law School. Uh, actually, University of Chicago Law School, he was part of uh, the U.S. Justice Department's uh, team that went to Rwanda uh, after the genocide, uh, investigating what happened. And as he was there, his heart was moved, and as he wrestled with the scriptures, as he wrestled with what he was seeing about the devastation around him, he realized that there were things that law could do in countries that no other force could. And so he birthed the idea of international justice mission when he returned home. And what they do is particularly in cases of things like sex trafficking or uh, child slavery, they realize that the laws of the countries where those things occur, which is really the, almost every country in the world, um, are very protective of its people but are rarely enforced. And they realize that often missionaries and churches know what's going on but can't do very much about it because it would threaten the ministry that they're already doing. So IJM works in partnership with groups like World Vision and other missionaries to say when you hear or when you find a brothel in which people are being enslaved, when you find a factory in which children, 8, 9, 10, 7, 14, 
are making bricks by hand in order to pay off their family debt, reported to us, we'll gather a team of local Christian lawyers, equip them to get law enforcement involved, as well as provide aftercare as sex slaves are freed and children are given opportunities for education and hope. One of the stories that IGM tells is um, they were in Bangkok and um, had learned where a brothel was that had um, trapped uh, several teen and preteen women and children uh, in sex slavery. And working with government officials as well as um, local agencies, um, they're able to raid the place and free the women there. One of the girls' names was Elizabeth. Elizabeth was, I believe, about 15 years old when she was freed. Uh, she was sold uh, by her parents to a sex trafficker uh, in order to help pay family debts back at one of the provinces at the outskirts of Thailand. Elizabeth was a Christian. Elizabeth, um, like most prostitutes in Bangkok, was probably raped by customers several times a day, if not dozens of times a day. When they came to her room and freed her, um, the team uh, looked around for a moment and they said, they saw um, above her bed written on the ceiling in pretty childlike script um, was the first verses of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? And as they processed and talked with Elizabeth and brought, brought, provided aftercare, what they realized was morning after morning as she was raped, afternoon after noon, as she was sold to men who wanted to use her night after night, as clients would come and go, as she laid on that bed, she was able to look on that psalm. And she said, I didn't know when I was going to be rescued. I didn't know how I was ever going to get out. I did know that the Lord was my light and my salvation, and I did not need to be afraid. Right? She understood and had um, embraced in a deep soul way what the psalm is trying to tell us. It's not like the world isn't dangerous. It's not like there aren't things to fear. It's not like there aren't things that are designed to crush our souls. But Elizabeth, in, I think, a very real way, chose to dwell at the heart of what the psalm is talking about. If you know the Lord like this, then you have hope and you have the ability to endure. And as bad as it can be, you can take a deep breath. You can take a deep breath because I think not only does Psalm 91 remind us of the God in whom we can trust who will um, save us, Psalm 91 also reorients us from fear to faith. Uh, what, I, what strikes me about scripture is that um, the contrast is rarely between fear, I mean, sorry, faith and doubt, which is how we wrestle with it, I think. If you just had enough faith and stopped doubting, you'd be okay. But more often than not, I think, the contrast in scripture, particularly in the Gospels, is between faith and fear. Faith, confidence, I think, expressed in action, and fear, anxiety, resulting in paralysis. And Psalm 91 pushes us from fear and drives us into faith, if we will let it. Because it, it acknowledges, as I've said before, there are things to be fear, fearful of. Psalm 91 identifies actually seven specific threats that are basically impossible to defend yourself from, whether you're strong or you're weak. Look at them in verses 3 through 8 again. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. Right? If, I realize very few of us are fowlers, but... Um, it was both the use of a decoy as well as nets and other things to trap birds. So aware or unaware, you can be ambushed. And who can prevent the spread of sickness? 
He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Think about how comprehensive these threats are that the psalmist talks about, right? Um, they're comprehensive in scope. It's from the individual who might be trapped in some sort of ambush to the global. Tens of thousands are dying all around you. It's in style from those who want to entrap you as those, well, who want to attack you by an arrow in verse 5. It's um, the complete vulnerability you have at all times of day and night. You could be vulnerable to these things. And not only is it you and global, is it... Um, those who entrap you and those who attack you, not only is it morning and evening, but it's psychological and physical as well. There's terror to be worried about in verse 5, as well as physical threats in verse 6. At every area of life, we seem open, weak, and helpless. The psalm, though, presses us to reject fear and have faith. I love the imagery that's being used in verse 4, particularly because... Um, it's this weird mix of gentleness as well as um, hardness. Ferocity um, as well as um, passion. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you'll find refuge. Relates, if you've seen any kind of Egyptian art or Mesopotamian art, there are often pictures of people being... Um, sheltered under these wings, which would represent the power of a spirit over them, probably coming from the um, example that people have watched and you yourself may have seen with larger birds of um, a hen uh, bringing its uh, chicks under its wings for protection, or a larger bird. Um, many of us have watched uh, Canadian geese, the unavoidable Canadian geese that we now protect with international treaties that have plagued almost any open space, I find, um, here in the New York area. If you walk up to them when a gosling is run, right, they spread their wings both to attack you but also to begin to protect their young, and they'll begin to gather their young behind them. Um, all of us who are parents know that same experience, right? When your child um, is in danger, you want to pick them up in your arms and hold them, as if your body provides that much more protection. Um, it's such a natural thing that when Gary Haugen was in Rwanda, he said um, he was startled by how often as they would uh, move bodies, uh, they'd find the body of an infant uh, underneath the body of a parent. Both had been killed by the machete or by the bullet, but inevitably the children uh, were being held by a parent. Because the last instinctive response you have is, I'm going to hold you, and with my own body I will protect you. And the Lord says, I'm doing that with you. I'm interposing my body between you and the danger. Unless it seem weak or little um, sentimental, the image then moves uh, in verse 4 from feathers and finding refuge under his wings to his faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. It's not just this gentle kind of protection, but there's a hardness and a strongness of that protection. And it goes on to say in verse 8, not only will he protect you, but he will vindicate you. You will only observe all this with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. You have nothing to fear. Because God will one day right the scales. One day God will say, all those who attacked you, I will judge. You have nothing to be afraid of. Now, let me point out two quick things. One of which is, um, 
the stories I've told, obviously, of Elizabeth or of Ijam suggest that there are these dramatic acts of bravery that we're called to do. And I'm often reminded when I think about that of a story that Richard Mao tells. Richard Mao is the president at Fuller Seminary, and he writes in um, one of his books, uh, who's whose name completely escapes me right now, but um, Uncommon Decency. It's a great book on uh, the need for as well as um, how to pursue civility in an increasingly incivil world. But he said he remembers being at a conference one day when he was a younger theologian, and he was kind of nattering on about the need for everyone to be radical toward Jesus and radical discipleship and radical commitment. And an older theologian walked up to him and said, you know, I appreciate all that you're saying, but I want you to keep in mind with all this radical stuff you're talking about, there's an old woman in a nursing home today. And for her, the most radical act of faith that she has is she's going to get up out of her room and walk down to the dining hall and eat with her friends, trusting that God will cause her not to lose bladder control and embarrass herself. And she's going to do it trusting that God loves her enough to see her through that two-hour period. And for her, that's the most radical act of obedience she can manage today. So as you talk about radical this and radical that, Keep in mind, even the small radical acts of obedience may seem quite ordinary and teeny to you, but are tremendous in the eyes of God. As I think about what it means to move from faith or from fear to faith, I think about um, the way that the students in university have been um, sharing their faith recently on campus. I think since the school year began, conservatively, we know of um, 100 to 115 students who've come to faith. We've talked to them and done the follow-up with them. One of the stories that we heard came um, up at Russell Sage near Albany. Kathy was a new Christian. Uh, she'd come to faith last year uh, in January, or this past January, and she attended one of our uh, fall training conferences uh, in October called Gearing Up, because we're trying to help students um, think about how to pursue Jesus more faithfully. And Kathy's a pretty confident student um, who doesn't like rules and doesn't like suggestions, but the one area that she's really been afraid of was sharing her faith. So wouldn't you know, um, just about a week after going to this conference and realizing she was pretty confident about most things but not confident about sharing her faith, she actually had quite a bit of fear, she went on Tuesday to the evening prayer meeting that Sage hosts in um, one of the lounges in the dorms. And um, another student arrived uh, named Diona and Kathy was pretty disappointed that nobody else was coming. I mean, this is a week after the big conference. She was hoping a lot of people would come to pray, but they said, okay, that's fine. We're going to pray anyways. Then as they were praying, um, a woman named Jennifer came in the room uh, to do her homework since it was a student lounge. She didn't know what was going on. But as she began to listen to them pray, she got uh, more and more intrigued, um, in part because Kathy was praying for God's full potential to be realized in all of the women on this women's school. So Jennifer interrupted them and began asking uh, both Kathy and uh, Diona questions. And as she was asking questions, Kathy realized um, Jennifer didn't know Jesus. And she said, I didn't know what to do, but I did remember what I learned at, Exped at this conference just a week ago. And even though I'm not a rule follower, when I'm panicking, rules are very easy to follow. So she remembered rule number one in sharing your faith, don't judge, correct, or criticize when non-Christians are telling their story. And so... Kathy listened to Jennifer's questions, heard Jennifer's stories, and just kept affirming her. That's, you know, I'm so glad you're sharing this. Wow, that seemed, must have been really hard. And she began to share how um, Kathy herself felt like she was in a pretty similar position just a year ago. Filled with questions, not really sure who God was, but really curious. When the conversation kind of down, died down a little, still kind of fear, filled with fear because 
you know, they, she wasn't sure what to do next. Kathy remembered the second rule that was shared about how to share your faith. The first one was, right, um, don't correct or criticize, listen affirmatively. The second one was, be vulnerable at sharing about your own faith. It will help people feel okay about sharing about their own lives. So Kathy started to tell Jennifer about how Kathy really thought of herself as a lesbian, and she had really hated Christians before she came to faith. And she told Jennifer, I only went to church because my friend kept bugging me, and I thought I'd just get him off my back and make him happy by going. But then I just kept encountering Jesus. And the Jesus I saw in the Bible, so fascinating, so intriguing, so infuriating, and yet so beautiful, I decided to become a Christian even though I still thought of myself as a lesbian. And she said, um, I know God is working in me right now to discover a new identity that's very different from the sexual identity that I've had before. I'm not done, but I know he's at work. I also know, she said, that until I figure out my relationship with my parents, which is terrible, um, there's no possibility of having a healthy relationship going forward. And so I'm in process with where God is. But I feel more whole and more eager to see how God continues to change me and transform me as I seek him. And I'm going to trust him for whatever the outcome is, no matter where it takes me. Now, at this point, Jennifer and Diona are just crying as they're listening to Kathy tell her story. And Diona then takes the opportunity um, to begin to share some of her own experience with Jesus. Well, as all this is going on, Kathy, who's still filled with fear, like, right, great, I'm talking to this person who's kind of interested in spiritual things I've gotten there, but I don't know where it's going to go. So now I start sharing, like, just, like, stripping myself emotionally naked in front of her. Now what do I do? She remembered rule number three, which was, so ask your friend how Jesus might be working in them as you have this conversation. So Kathy said, Jennifer, asked Jennifer, um, what is your heart saying? Uh, how are you responding to these stories that we're sharing? And Jennifer said, I want what you have. I don't know what it is, but I want it. And over the course of that evening, Kathy had the tremendous experience of watching Jennifer come to faith. You see, if you think of all the things that could cause a student like Kathy to step back in fear, right? Judgment from your friends, the vulnerability that comes from sharing your life and its story, challenging somebody to respond to the gospel, there were a lot of reasons to stop. But if you really believe God is leading you, then you have some hope and you can take a deep breath. The last thing is, you could take a deep breath because Psalm 91 reorients us from seen to unseen realities in verses 9 through 13. Um, if you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guide you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. If you read those promises, they're a little startling, I think, because after thinking about how God protects you and this promise that you won't even stumble, you won't even stub a toe because God so cares for you, you think, but I mean, really? I mean, we could spend several days here. If I just invited us, would you share a few ways that you've been hurt in this world? In which the realities of the brokenness of the fall have invaded your life so that you fall, 
fallen prey to sickness, your family has experienced disaster, where you've been pained or hurt or attacked unjustly, where you've been bruised and battered by the fall. These promises seem so alien to our actual experience. How can you really take them seriously? As I was reflecting on that, because it's a legitimate question, I, I pray, read through psalms like this or sing songs like, Now thank we all our God, and I sometimes think, Either these people were on drugs because they don't remember what happened, or they may have been very lucky, and I'm happy for them. It's too bad I haven't experienced that as well. It struck me that um, verses 11 and 12 come up elsewhere in Scripture. For he will command his angels concerning you to guide you in all your ways. They will lift up you up in their hands so they will not strike your foot against a stone. These were the words that Satan used when tempting Jesus before his ministry began. And so I began to reflect a little bit on Jesus and was prompted by a number of people who have reflected on the psalm as well. Look at how Jesus experienced the promises in these psalms. Where did angels come and minister to him, and where didn't they? It strikes me that angels ministered to Jesus before his trial at Gethsemane, as he wrestled with the will of the Lord, as he wept, as he begged God to take this away from him, but chose to say, not my will, but your will. Before the time of judgment came, angels reassured Jesus. Angels ministered to Jesus as well after trial and temptation, because after the 40-day period of fasting in the desert, after Satan tempts him with those three great temptations, angels came to minister to Jesus. But never do we really hear about angels ministering during the trials and the temptations. They seem to prepare us for them and let's provide for us after them. But perhaps what Jesus experiences, what the psalmist really might be saying to us, we're saved through but not from trial and pain. We're saved in the midst of it but not from it. That in point of fact, what God doesn't seem to say is nothing bad will ever happen to you, but I have you. I will take care of you. I will watch over you. How did Jesus endure trial and temptation? The reality of a broken world, the reality of physical hunger, as well as spiritual temptation. Perhaps when Jesus heard Satan quote verses 11 and 12, throw yourself for, you know, he will command his angels concerning you to guide you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Perhaps as he was listening to that, he thought to the very next verse. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. And that he knew, as the ultimate son of Adam and Eve, that one day he would indeed trample on a serpent. That no devouring lion was going to attack him or his people, but he would overcome it. That there was nothing to be afraid of from the trial or temptation posed by Satan because he knew he would one day triumph. And, oh, other children of Adam and Eve, I believe we too will crush the serpent's head. And we will not need to fear the devouring lion as Peter encourages us to in First Peter. How? Because in Revelation 12 verses 10 through 11, as the great um, serpent is thrown down from heaven... The song that goes out is this kind of song. It says this, um, 
Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That there may be something I want to suggest about how you endure a situation like this modeled by what Jesus does and then what is promised for the church both in the present and in the future that as we endure trouble as we experience trial and temptation as the real pains of the world engage us if we will do what Jesus did which is not attempt to shy away from them or shirk them, but instead engage them for the sake of declaring that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior, then Satan's power is broken, the serpent's head actually is crushed, and Jesus Christ's reign and rule is demonstrated. Jesus Christ, in the end, demonstrates, I think, that angels ministered before and after, but particularly in those situations where as he struggled, as he suffered, he did it not to escape pain himself, but to embrace pain for the sake of others. In fact, in Luke 11, verses 7 through, um, 17 through 20, um, 72 missionaries are sent forth, and when they return, they report on all these great things that they did in the name of the Lord, and what Jesus says is this, I saw Satan fall from heaven because of the things that you did that actually the very way we act may be the very way that God demonstrates his triumph. Take a deep breath. If the, Psalms begin, if the psalm began with a reminder of who God is, then it really ends with a reminder of what God will do. God makes eight promises at, the, at these last uh, two verses in 14 through 16 to address the seven threats. So in some ways he's like, look, there's seven threats to you, but there are eight ways I'm going to rescue you. Don't be afraid. I outnumber them. God says, I will rescue, I will protect, I will answer you when you call, I will be with you. I will deliver you and I will honor you, vindicating you in the eyes of those who would um, attack you. I will satisfy you with long life, you have nothing to be afraid of, and in the end you will see my salvation. Do you see that progression? I'm going to rescue you from evil, and then I'm going to protect you by uh, putting you in a great place. I'm going to answer you when you pray so that you know you aren't alone because I will be with you. All the powers may be arrayed against you, but you don't need to be worried because you will be saved from them, and everyone will know that you are my people. I have chosen you, and I will protect you, and evil will be judged. I'm going to give you a satisfying way to live, and you're going to experience my salvation both now and then. What do we need to do to dwell in the shadow and the shelter of the Lord? Well, in verses 14 through 16, there are three things that are described of the people of God in this. If we love him, and the word here is um, the old English word would have been cleave, right? What we say in marriage. If we will commit ourselves to him in covenant love. If we acknowledge his name, which means we know who he is and all that he has chosen to reveal himself to be. And if we pray, if we call on him, God will do these things. To the people who know him, who love him, and who speak to him, God says, I will rescue, protect, answer, be with you, deliver, honor you, give you long life, and satisfy you with salvation. I was struck by the hymn choice that we had today, and hymn uh, 556, Now Thank We All Our God. It's one of my favorite hymns. Again, this is one of those hymns, if you don't know much about the background, it's awfully cheery, isn't it? It's a somber kind of German tune, 
I'll acknowledge. Um, because, you know, Germans aren't known for sprightly in their hymn writing. They're a sober-minded people, these Lutherans. But listen to these words again. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices, who wondrous things hath done, in whom the world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Again, like rose-colored glasses, maybe smoking a peace pipe somewhere, really enjoying life. But if you know the story of Martin Rinkert, you'd realize that this hymn comes at pretty great cost. Martin Rinkert was a pastor in the town of Ellensburg in Germany uh, in the middle of the Thirty Years' War, in the middle of a time where um, the German population, because of war as well as plague, as well as the disease and refugee problem, shrank from um, 16 million to less than 6 million in the course of 15 years, or I mean about 30 years. Imagine what that would do. Um, there are stories that Mark and Mark, we have from Martin Rinkert where um, literally, I think, in an average year, he would bury 4,000 people in his town. He did up to 50 funerals a day. His own wife died of the plague. With that scenario in mind, right, over half your country's population dying around you, in your own town, on some days, you would do 50 funerals a day, which would mean six or seven an hour, assuming he wasn't working 24 hours a day, 4,000 in the course of the year. Think how this line then begins to read. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us, with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us, and keep us in his grace, and guide us when perplexed, and free us from all ills in this world and the next. All of a sudden, that rosy glow disappears a little, doesn't it? I remember we were praying through the psalm when I was a student back at the University of Chicago and we were reading lines back to one another as part of our prayer and the, the leader of the worship time said, you know, what, what lot phrase really grap grips you? And this one student, um, earnest, loving, but from a really painful background, just said, God guides us when perplexed. And packed and guide us when perplexed is the life of a man who buried 4,000 of his countrymen in a single year who watched his own wife die of plague and still has the ability to write all praise and thanks to God the Father now be given, the Son in him who reigns with him in highest heaven, the one eternal God who earth and heaven adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. There's something I want to suggest about the ability to love God and know God and call upon him and to experience his rescue, which allows you to say both in good times and times of great perplexity, I will believe. So you have to take a deep breath. And let me suggest that maybe that's the spiritual discipline that God invites us to at the end of a psalm like Psalm 91. I don't know if you're familiar with the discipline of breath prayer. I'm sure you're familiar with many spiritual disciplines here. Breath prayer is a prayer that emerged out of um, the Eastern Church. And they were wrestling with the question of, how do you pray without ceasing? You know, Paul tells us to do that, but I mean, the only way I can think of how to do that would be just not to have a job, right? I mean, if you're a monk, it's great. I'm not a monk. I'm busy. So how do you pray without ceasing? Well, they begin to think, what happens if with every breath we tried to pray? And so the discipline that they developed was to identify one sentence, in one sentence, what's the deepest thing you need to both know about who God is and your deepest need for God? And as you inhale, 
pray the deepest truth about who God is in your situation. And as, as you exhale, express your prayer. Classically, they use the Jesus prayer, which is, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So with every inhale, they just thought, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they just tried to remember every time they took a breath to pray that prayer and every time they exhaled to ask for that kind of help. And slowly what they realized was it started becoming something that they were only half aware of but constantly praying because they were always aware that they were breathing. For a colleague of mine, Roger Anderson, he's had um, been using breath prayer as a spiritual discipline for many years. Um, he lives up in Wisconsin and was in a, a really terrible car accident. It was one of those, you know, four-lane highways, whiteout conditions, a car hit him, his car rolled several times, he was in a ditch. He said, um, I remember the accident about to happen, and the next thing I remember is incredible pain. He said, the second thing I was aware of after the pain was that I was breathing. And he said, as soon as I knew I was breathing, I realized I was praying. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he said, I was in incredible pain. I couldn't see anything but what the ambulance driver told my family when they finally got me to the hospital was they were struck by how incredibly calm they were as they had to rip my car open, cut me loose, and get me to the ambulance. And he said, it's because beyond the pain and my own awareness that I was alive, the next thing I was aware of was I was breathing, and if I could breathe, I could pray. For my own life, um, I work with InterVarsity, as uh, folk have mentioned. Uh, I remember a season, it still continues in some ways, where I was just struck by the incredible scarcity the financial scarcity we're facing, the lack of staff that I was facing, a number of problems on campus, and the breath prayer that I began to pray at that time was, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, your grace is sufficient for me. Now, it, it was a problematic prayer because I find that chorus a little irritating, actually, and I can't get out of my head, but um, it was very helpful because there would be a number of times when a crisis would occur, I'd be struck by a problem, all of a sudden new scarcity would arise, and all of a sudden you panic, right? And I would just think, take a deep breath, Greg, don't panic. And I was praying. I wonder, as we begin to reflect on who God is, how we might need to encounter him, if a discipline that would be useful for us as a church is to engage in breath prayer. What's one truth about God that you have to cling to at this stage of your life? And if you were to sum up in a single sentence, what's the one request that you need to make? And every time you breathe, you pray it. And it becomes part of a rhythm of how you actually live. A reminder that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty that we would be able to say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You see, if you can go through life with those kind of eyes, then you have the unique opportunity that law students have, which is, though the world is filled with threat, if you're a law student, you also realize every one of those threats is an opportunity. <laughs> I want to suggest that financial opportunity may not be the way to think about it, but perhaps with every real threat that we face, with every real pain that we experience, with every danger that we look into the eye and choose to live in faith but not in fear, there's an opportunity to declare who we believe God is, 
to act on it, and then to pray our way through believing that God will hear and God will act. God will be with us and God will rescue. God will save and God will honor. And you do what everyone will tell you to do at times where you're stressed out, fearful, afraid, or angry. You'll take a deep breath and you'll pray the truth. And then God willing and with God's mercy will actually begin to live it as well. Let me pray for us. Lord, protect me from my own desire to protect myself and my family and instead to trust you with our future. And so I pray for um, this congregation as I prayed for my own daughters when I held them in my arms for the first time. Lord, I don't pray for our safety, but I pray instead that we would, be, we would follow you faithfully wherever you lead, whether into safety or into danger, knowing that wherever you leave us, lead us will be the safest place in the world at the center of your will. And then protect us from self and turn us to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.